Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, committed to pioneering the next generation of innovative lung cancer treatments. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about surgical care for lung cancer with Dr. Andrew Donasapan. Dr. Donasapan is an assistant professor of thoracic surgery at the Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery at Yale and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. Andrew, maybe we can start off by setting the stage. Tell me about lung cancer. How common is it? Who gets it? What stage does it present at? That kind of thing. So uh, lung cancer is uh, uh, the um, number one cause of uh, cancer death in the United States. Um, uh, uh, Most of the time we associate uh, patients with lung cancer uh, folks who have uh, smoking history, uh, but also people who have not smoked um, do develop lung cancer as well. Um, <clears throat> uh, there, uh, several years ago, there was a, um, a national lung cancer screening trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011, uh, in which uh, they demonstrated for folks who uh, are between the ages of 55 to 74 years uh, have had a prior um, smoking history of 30 pack years, meaning um, about a pack a day for 30 years, uh, or those who have quit within the past 15 years. Um, those people who have had yearly um, lung cancer, uh, yearly CT scans, um, they found uh, lung cancers in those folks and were able to show a uh, reduction in uh, lung cancer death by uh, 20%, a relative risk reduction. Um, so um, in, uh, at Yale, <clears throat> we uh, have a, a lung cancer screening program uh, that allows us to um, detect uh, lung cancer earlier. So, Andrew, let, let's talk a little bit about finding these lung cancers. I mean, certainly lung cancer is something that everybody's heard about and everybody knows that it's bad. Um, I think a few questions I have. The first is that we often put lung cancer together with smoking. And even the screening program that you described really puts an emphasis on smoking. But you mentioned that people who have never smoked can also get lung cancer. So how do you know um, what to watch for? Like, what are the symptoms that you would present with? I think that, you know, if you have been a smoker for a long time, uh, you might be more thinking about lung cancer. But certainly, if you've never touched a cigarette in your life, it's not something that's going to be top of mind. So what are the symptoms that people should be looking for? Right. Uh, Well, um, one aspect that we um, look at uh, when evaluating patients for lung cancer is also family history. Uh, In addition to a uh, personal family history, we also uh, uh, ask uh, symptoms uh, such as uh, cough, um, any uh, coughing up of uh, blood-tinged sputum, um, uh, sometimes wheezing can also uh, be a, a, a indicator. Uh, obviously, these are very uh, generic and very common symptoms, 
Um, uh, when we evaluate patients, in addition to the symptoms, we do take into account a variety of other uh, those other factors uh, into the um, uh, determination of how likely this person has a uh, lung cancer. Um, often, um, lung cancers are detected on a CT scan. Uh, that is found incidentally for a variety of other reasons that patients may get CT scans. And that sort of begins the workup uh, of uh, lung cancer. So I want to unpack that just a a little bit more because as a lifetime non-smoker, I'm sitting here thinking, I've had a cough before and I can wheeze when it's cold outside and I've run up 10 flights of stairs. Um, Hopefully that doesn't mean that I've got lung cancer. So help me to understand when should people be going to the doctor? I mean, um, when should we be kind of saying, hey, I might need a CT scan. Um, Are we sure that I don't have lung cancer and not just, you know, exercise induced asthma due to cold Right. Or something. Of course. And uh, <clears throat> when, um, uh, as I had mentioned, for uh, folks who have had a, a smoking history, that's the number one thing that uh, raises the suspicion level. Uh, for uh, the less common situation where uh, folks who have uh, had a cough for a period of time that has not gotten better with a uh, with a course of antibiotics or the traditional um, uh, therapies for cough, uh, and an X-ray is done, uh, for example, by a, a primary care physician uh, that shows a spot uh, that hasn't gone away for a period of time. Um, those are some uh, uh, situations where uh, that would raise uh, the suspicion to, for example, get a CT scan to follow that. And the other question that I have is, you know, I think now we know, and it's a bona fide truth and everybody knows it, that smoking causes cancer. I don't think that anybody can say that that's fake news. Um, But what is also true is that it is incredibly hard to quit uh, smoking. So I have two questions for you. The first question is, um, if you manage to quit smoking, do you actually reduce your lung cancer risk? And then the second question, which may be more difficult, is how exactly does one go about quitting smoking? Right. So uh, quitting smoking is one of the most difficult things um, that um, anyone can do. Um, we counsel, we often counsel our patients in clinic um, that if they do uh, quit smoking, uh, it is, of course, beneficial to their health. Um, they do still uh, have that inherent risk of lung cancer because of the history of smoking. Um, uh, <clears throat> but they um, would uh, be able to improve uh, their their future health um, by quitting smoking. Um, so, but they're still at risk. They are still at risk. Because even in the screening trial, even if you've quit less than 15 years ago, you're still considered high risk. Exactly. But you know what, Andrew? Some people are going to be listening to this going, well, then why should I quit smoking? Right, right. So um, quitting smoking uh, has numerous uh, health benefits uh, aside from uh, the uh, respiratory aspect. Um, It affects uh, the cardiovascular system, uh, which is the uh, number one cause of uh, health-related hospitalizations in the United States. Um, For the general health benefits of um, quitting smoking, we do recommend that. Um, but you are correct that um, uh, just having had smoking in the past, that uh, is your uh, risk of um, lung cancer. So I guess the, the key message there is to anyone who is listening who hasn't started, uh, don't 
because if you do start, it's kind of with you for life. It's kind exactly. of like it's kind of like the scarlet letter that you can't get rid of. Right. Uh, and <clears throat> at uh, Yale, we have a smoking cessation program that helps uh, folks uh, quit smoking. Uh, they are often with us in uh, our clinics. Uh, and can counsel patients on a variety of methods. Um, uh, we all know these uh, over-the-counter products that are in the forms of gums uh, or uh, uh, medications that can help with uh, reducing the, um, uh, the uh, cravings for smoking. All right. So let's say you have been a smoker, you're trying to quit, or maybe you have quit, and you develop a cough that doesn't go away, and you're coughing up blood, and you go to your family doctor, and they get a chest x-ray, and lo and behold, it finds a spot. And because of your history, your doctor is worried um, and sends you to see a specialist. Take me through kind of how lung cancer is diagnosed. Right. Uh so if a, um, if a patient has uh, um, high-risk uh, uh, characteristics, uh, as you mentioned, and there's a spot on a chest X-ray, um, the next step is to obtain a CT scan, a diagnostic CT scan that will help better characterize uh, this spot in the lung. Uh, <clears throat> on the uh, CT scan, uh, we would, uh, uh, the radiologist would be able to um, uh, uh, describe the uh, spot. Um, often it's in uh, terms of the size, uh, the morphology, meaning is it a smooth border? Is it a, uh, has a, a, what we call speculated uh, or irregular borders? Uh, is it solid? Is it not so solid or subsolid? Uh, so there are a lot of characteristics from the CT scan that we can obtain. Uh, and <clears throat> based on uh, the uh, level of suspicion for this uh, nodule, then there are several ways to uh, then work this up. Uh, patients often get a, a PET scan. Uh, a PET scan is uh, different from a CAT scan in the sense that the PET scan uh, shows metabolic activity of uh, areas uh, of the body. Uh, for example, a cancer that is metabolically very active, the cells are actively dividing, will show up as being very bright on the, uh, on the PET scan. Uh, if the um, CT scan has um, high-risk features, if the uh, PET scan shows that this is bright, this is, would be concerning for uh, lung cancer. Um, depending on the location uh, of the nodule, uh, this could be biopsied in a variety of ways. Uh, the most common way is a, a CT-guided biopsy. Um, this is an outpatient procedure. It's done under local uh, anesthesia. And under CT guidance, uh, a needle is passed into the uh, nodule to obtain um, cells to uh, examine under the microscope. So let me get this straight. You do a CT scan. You see a lump or a mass, and it's speculated, and you're worried about it, and the patient's been a smoker, and you're thinking, this might be a cancer. You then do a PET scan that lights up. But then you still do a biopsy to prove that it's a cancer. So my question is, 
do you really need the biopsy or did you really need the PET scan? Because it sounds like either way, you're going to need some sort of test to confirm that it's a cancer, but do you need both? Right. Uh, so in the um, workup of lung cancer, uh, a PET scan is often helpful to not only look at the lung nodule, uh, but to examine the rest of the body to see if there's any spread, um, uh, any uh, activity elsewhere that looks suspicious. Um, so there, that would be another uh, reason to obtain a PET scan. Um, you're right in that the, um, uh, the CT-guided biopsy is not always necessary. Uh, if the CT scan and the PET scan uh, look suspicious enough, um, patients uh, then uh, can be referred to the appropriate specialist um, to um, uh, go ahead with a particular treatment depending on what uh, preliminary stage or clinical stage that uh, this seems to be. So let's let's go there then. Tell me about the staging of lung cancer. What exactly, what are the factors that go into that? How do you figure out what stage you are? And how does the treatment vary by stage? Right. So uh, as in with uh, other cancers, um, the staging for lung cancer uh, follows a stage one, two, three, and four. Uh, and within each stage, um, uh, that is uh, determined by uh, the um, what we have a classification for the uh, TNM stage. Um, that's tumor uh, node and metastasis. So, uh, for lung cancer, uh, the T aspect um, refers to the size of the um, nodule. Uh, the N or the nodes refers to the uh, involvement of um, any of the surrounding lymph nodes, and the M uh, refers to the um, uh, a determination if there are any metastases uh, throughout the rest of the body. Uh, for uh, stages um, one and two, uh, surgery is the uh, first step in treatment for lung cancer. And so, presumably for the others, there's other modalities. So I would like to pick up on that conversation and talk more about the treatment of different stages of lung cancer. Where does surgery play a role? Where does medicine play a role? Right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the surgical care of lung cancer with my guest, Dr. Andrew Danasopan. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, now offering three FDA-approved therapies for different forms of lung cancer with more in the pipeline. When it comes to lung cancer treatment, one size does not fit all. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer, and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Andrew Donasopan. We're 
discussing surgical care of patients with lung cancer. And right before the break, Andrew was talking to us about how lung cancer is staged. And very much like other cancers that we've talked about on this show, we use this TNM staging system. How big is the cancer, the tumor, T? Uh, does it look like the lymph nodes are involved, N? And are there distant metastases or spread throughout the body, M? Now, it seems to me, Andrew, that a lot of that information you're going to get based on the PET scan that you said that you would get and the CT scan. Right. And and so, so how do we... How do we really divide people up? So so stage four in many cancers is spread to distant organs. Is that the case in lung cancer too? Right, correct. And so how is that treated? Does surgery play a role there or no? Uh, surgery um, at this uh, stage uh, does not play a uh, direct role uh, with stage four. Um, uh, at Yale, we are uh, considering a certain very select groups of people with um, stage four disease for surgical treatment, um, for which we're um, uh, uh, developing uh, clinical pathways um, and potential trials in the future. Uh, but as a gold standard uh, in, in throughout the uh, United States, uh, stage four is treated with uh, uh, chemotherapy uh, and um, immunotherapy. So the reason for that really is because it's got distant spread and surgery can't really treat distant metastasis. Right. We think of uh, distant spread as a systemic issue. Uh, we think of uh, surgery as treating a locally contained um, cancer. And so for systemic uh, um, uh, disease, um, systemic treatments like uh, chemotherapy and immunotherapy would be helpful. So tell me more about surgery in the metastatic setting, because certainly in a number of cancers, um, you know, people have started wondering about whether there is a role for surgery of the primary disease and some cancers even of the metastases in stage four disease. So tell me more about this study that uh, is is going on at, at Yale or the, the pathway that you're developing, because I think that that um, is interesting and certainly something that we think about in breast cancer as well. Right. This is a very exciting, very uh, new topic um, in which uh, we are selecting for patients who, uh, for example, have uh, a lung nodule uh, who uh, do not have any other spread except for perhaps um, a small number um, or just one spot uh, of metastasis, for example, in the brain. Um, I actually did have a patient uh, like that a few weeks ago uh, who I operated on. Uh, she had, uh, she was a middle-aged woman, uh, prior smoker, uh, had a small one centimeter nodule in the lung, uh, but uh, had um, two additional um, uh, nodules in the brain. Um, now the brain uh, metastases were uh, treated with uh, radiation uh, and once uh, she was determined to not have any uh, further progression of the disease there, uh, she was then referred uh, to surgery uh, to consider uh, a surgical resection of the primary uh, nodule in the lung. Uh, she did well after her lung surgery, uh, was able to go home after day three, um, and uh, she's so far done very well. 
Yeah. So interesting because, you know, previously we would say to people, you know, if you've got distant metastatic disease, there really isn't much we can do for you locally. And yet, you know, that local primary might be the only site that really is left after people have treated with systemic therapy small uh, clusters of disease in single organs. Uh, so really exciting uh, work there and so- certainly something that we talk about in colorectal cancer where it's now become standard of care that you can resect uh, not only the primary but you know up to four liver metastases has become pretty standard um, and something that we're working on uh, to really figure out in breast cancer as well. So let's talk now about um, the other stages. So um, stage, if we look at the other end of the spectrum, stage one, um, tell me about what that is. Is that cancer that has no lymph nodes? Correct. Uh, so stage one lung cancer uh, involves uh, just the uh, primary site of the lung cancer within uh, a particular region of the lung uh, without any involvement of any lymph nodes. And so how are those treated? Uh, those are treated with uh, surgery. And surgery alone, so no immunotherapy, no chemotherapy, no radiation, no nothing, just surgery? Correct. Uh, Surgery is the um, gold standard treatment for stage 1 lung cancer. Uh, There are um, throughout the country starting to be uh, trials looking at if they're if uh, immunotherapy um, uh, combined with surgery would be even more effective. Uh, but as of right now, the gold standard is surgery for stage one. And what's the prognosis of stage one patients who are treated with surgery? Uh, for stage one lung cancer, uh, it depends on the uh, particular uh, division within the stage one. There are a few uh, uh, subdivisions in stage one. But in general, uh, uh, and we talk about five-year survivals um, on the order of the high 70s to 90s. Okay. And when you talk about different divisions, tell me about that. What do you mean? Sure. Uh, for example, in uh, stage one, uh, there's uh, 1A and 1B. Um, it, within stage, uh, within uh, 1A, there's 1A1, 1A2, 1A3. Oh, there, <laughs> there are a few different uh, subdivisions um, depending on basically the size of the uh, tumor. Okay. So people are just trying to mince the salami really, really thinly. Exactly. I see. Okay. Um, And so in terms of surgery, I mean, I remember back in the good old days, um, you know, people who underwent lung surgery, I mean, this was really big surgery. I I mean, a a stem to stern kind of cut around the side. Um, and, you know, opening up, spreading ribs, maybe even taking a rib or two, um, and doing major resections, people staying in hospital with chest tubes and things like that. But these days, I mean, especially in um, some cancers, I mean, the the, the urology people uh, doing prostate cancers have now really used robotic surgery. Tell me about advances in surgical treatment for lung cancer. Where are we with that? Right. Um, Over the past 20 years, uh, there has been rapid development of minimally invasive techniques to uh, uh, to treat uh, lung cancers. Um, uh, Twenty years ago, this this was um, mirroring the development of laparoscopic surgery. Um, 
which is uh, what I tell a lot of my patients who know more about laparoscopic surgery than uh, what we do, which is thoracoscopic surgery uh, or VATS, uh, video-assisted uh, thoracoscopic surgery. Uh, it uses the same basic technology, uh, small cameras on the order of uh, five millimeters in uh, width, uh, as well as small instruments to um, go in between the ribs instead of, as you were saying, uh, cutting uh, muscle uh, in between the ribs and spreading the ribs and what we call a thoracotomy. Um, so with VATS, uh, that has helped patients um, to have less pain after surgery, uh, to have a decreased length of stay in the hospital, uh, and to return to work and life uh, uh, earlier than with a big uh, open surgery. Uh, in the past 10 years, there has been development of uh, robotic surgery, uh, as uh, you mentioned, uh, which uh, essentially is a uh, minimally invasive um, uh, tool, uh, just like uh, VATS. Uh, however, the, um, the ability to um, use uh, instruments uh, um, in a way that's different than VATS uh, allows for better uh, enhancement of manual dexterity, uh, and very fine and minute dissection around uh, the critical small structures that are required to do uh, lung surgery. So just to be clear, I mean, because sometimes when we talk about robotic surgery, the, the image that people get is, you know, you've got these little robots inside of you that are doing the surgery. I mean, it's still a surgeon sitting at a console um, using this robot-like technology to do this surgery, right? Absolutely. Um, the surgeon is at a console uh, next to the OR table. There is an assistant at the OR table with the patient. Uh, the robotic aspect of it refers to the, um, uh, the arms of the uh, robotic platform that is used uh, to perform the maneuvers. Um, uh, however, the surgeon is in complete control of the uh, instruments um, as uh, he or she uses it in the operation. So it sounds like you now have more tools in your armamentarium. So you can do the, the big open thoracotomy. You can do the minimally invasive VATS, uh, which allows you to do a smaller procedure but might not give you all of the dexterity of the third option, which is the robotic surgery. So what's the breakdown in terms of lung cancer surgery between the three modalities? Right. So for example, at Yale, uh, we do um, over 90% of our lung cancer operations minimally invasively, either by VATS or by robotic surgery. Uh, robotic surgery does uh, require additional uh, training. Uh, and so about uh, 25 to 30% of our cases that are minimally invasive are done uh, robotically. And so is there less, because of the uh, greater ability for surgeons to have more dexterity and so on and so forth, is robotic surgery, quote, better, unquote? I mean, would you have less blood loss, shorter operative time, shorter length of stay? Or is it really just that the surgeon can manipulate the arms of the device a little bit better? Right. I think uh, throughout the country, we're still trying to figure out if robotic surgery, uh, it does in fact translate into those um, important uh, patient-related outcomes that are better than uh, VAT surgery. Uh, uh, as of right now, um, both uh, are uh, viewed as um, 
better than uh, open thoracotomies, big incisions, uh, in terms of allowing patients to uh, recover quicker and return to work faster. And so, um, so are there certain patients that you would say you would advocate more for one option versus the other? Uh, at this point, uh, not necessarily. I think um, it's ultimately up to the comfort level of the surgeon. Uh, I think that um, uh, the important um, thing is that minimally invasive surgery is offered. Uh, I think if the surgeon has, has been well-trained in robotic surgery uh, and they're more comfortable with uh, approaching this robotically, um, then that is a fantastic way to go. Uh, I think that if uh, the surgeon um, does VAT surgery, um, I think that's um, also a, a great uh, modality to use. Um, the key point is that um, uh, to um, uh, choose a surgeon that uh, is uh, trained in some minimally invasive um, uh, platform. So good questions to ask your surgeon uh, when you meet your surgeon as to you know what techniques they feel comfortable using and what technology is available at your particular hospital. Absolutely. So in, in our last minute, um, Andrew, you know, we talked about the metastatic setting where patients get systemic therapy and now maybe surgery, uh, clinical trials pending. Uh, and we talked about early breast cancer stage one where they get surgery alone. What about that gray zone in stage two to three? Give me kind of the Coles Notes version of how those patients get treated. Right. Uh, stage two patients... Um, tend to have some um, spread of the cancer to local lymph nodes. Um, and often that um, is discovered uh, after the operation. Once the tumor and the lymph nodes are sent off uh, to the pathology lab, uh, and uh, uh, sometimes what happens is we do determine their uh, lymph node involvement. In those cases, uh, we um, have patients uh, see a medical oncologist for consideration of chemotherapy. First, before surgery? Uh, after uh, surgery. Okay. And then stage three, the same? For stage three, is a, uh, it's a controversial uh, field uh, in which we're trying to figure out uh, which patients benefit from which um, uh, treatment first. Uh, a common um, pathway for these patients um, in which uh, uh, they have involvement of the uh, lymph nodes not near the uh, tumor but closer to the middle of the chest. Um, uh, those patients tend to undergo chemotherapy uh, uh, and uh, radiation first before undergoing surgery. Dr. Andrew Danasapan is an assistant professor of thoracic surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.